All right, thanks, Peter. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, like Spence said, if you're brand new, welcome to our church. Glad you guys are, are joining us today. Uh, we are going to preach through Ephesians chapter 3 today, so if you uh, know where that is and want to turn on a Bible you have or phone app, go ahead and do that. I'll have it on screen here in just a second. Uh, but this is a standalone sermon today that is going to kind of um, be what we call a, a vision and values type sermon uh, for us, which we like to do at least once a year, ideally twice, but it sometimes just works out to be once, uh, where in the September especially, and today is actually what uh, some of you might remember in church if you've been a part of churches before, what we call Rally Sunday sometimes. Anyone ever heard that phrase? We don't use it much, so I guess no one has. Um, anyway, what that means is uh, we rally around kind of who we are. We rally around Jesus, obviously, primarily in his gospel. And uh, sometimes it's an opportunity just to say and to remind each other, um, you know, what we're all about missionally and, and kind of why, what our purpose is, um, what opportunities there are to grow in the church ministerially and, and so forth. And so um, this will kind of be that. It's a standalone sermon then that will hopefully recenter us a bit. Uh, and for those of you that are new, uh, clue you in a little bit to some of our key core values um, ministerially and uh, philosophically too, um, I suppose. I'm calling this um, outward, inward, and heavenward. Uh, again, if, uh, this might be phraseology you've heard before in the church if, if you've been a part of one, uh, but this idea of the church having an outward kind of impulse towards a dead and dying world, but also an inward bent towards nurturing the faith of a Christian and trying to balance those. Uh, we've used those two before as well. It's kind of a helpful, just, uh, you know, uh, it's not novel, but a helpful reminder that there's a balance between the two. And as I was thinking this week, uh, I think that that's a helpful thing for us today, just to look at that. I'm adding heavenward because this is a sermon. Uh, it's not just uh, this is our philosophy of ministry and then close the book and send us on our way. Uh, and so there's definitely kind of an upward or heavenward or, or God-focused, gospel-focused bent to all of this that I'll weave in throughout it all and let be the final word here in a second. But um, with that said, we'll use this as kind of a framework today to, to talk a bit about our church and... Um, see what the Bible says about the purpose of church in general, uh, and, and go from there. So uh, Ephesians 3 is an absolute goldmine of theology. Uh, some of you may have never read it before, so I'm excited to get to see it for the first time today. Others of you have, uh, and I'm excited for you that you get to see, read it again. It's, it's just rich, and you can't mine it for all its gold uh, in, in one reading by any stretch. So um, I'm going to read from chapter 3, verses 7 to 21. And then um, come back and talk about a couple of the mountaintops of this. There, there's, again, there's way too much here for one sermon, but a few of the big kind of uh, peaks uh, of the thing. And then, again, from kind of this framework, outward, inward, and, and heavenward. So it's kind of where we're going today. All right, let's read it in full to begin. Uh, we'll start in verse 7. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. If you were here for our summer series, we preached through 2 Timothy. Uh, it's the same church. Timothy was the pastor uh, at this church. So in that sense, kind of... Um, on topic here. All right, verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. 
For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I read this with uh, the pastors, other pastors at our church on Tuesday, and uh, Pastor Peter spoke up and said, can you believe that there's three more chapters after this in the book? Like, he kind of landed the plane, you know, a little bit here. It's kind of, it's just, it's beautiful. It's epic. It's majestic. It's, it's um, head in the cloudsy in a really good way, uh, and yet he just kind of takes back off again and, um, and, and has more to say. Ephesians 4 to 6 is good. Don't get me wrong. I'm just, I'm just saying this is, it seems like he's going to end here, but, but, he, but he doesn't. All right, so with that said, let's, let's dive in. We're going to look at outward first, then inward, then heavenward. Um, we'll call outward uh, to preach and to make known. So a couple of verbs from uh, Paul here sort of talking about his story uh, as the one, not the only, but one who was given this grace to preach to, to non-Jews for like basically the first time, at least explicitly so. Um, and then he kind of goes on from there. But also, all of us though, as Christians, are making known something. Uh, ver- I put verses... Um, 8 and then uh, 10 to 11 and then tacked on 21 here as well as kind of a summary of, um, of all of this uh, to, to revisit. But So part of what makes this passage so amazing is that it's so big picture. Like I was just kind of saying. Uh, it speaks to all kinds of things like the, like the purpose of Scripture, the purpose of history, why Jesus came into the world at all. Uh, it speaks to, the, to why the church exists and many other things too. But also going back further, it speaks to, and at least alludes or implies, what was lost in the very beginning. Because this is kind of a passage of, this is what God was working to fix and how he was working to be the solution to all evil and problems in the world. But that implies that there's a problem, right? Uh, if if it's, this is about a restoring of something, it implies something was lost in the very beginning, right? So that's not explicit here, but it's definitely uh, implicit. And he mentions it by way of kind of an interesting phrase. He says, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known or restored. This is what he's doing through Jesus. This is what he's doing through Jesus' body on earth, the church. He's making known his wisdom to angels, uh, you know, angels of light, as well as dark angels or demons, uh, the principalities he talked about, but also obviously to lost humanity. Uh, who needs to come to terms with this and hear it and receive it into their life in order to uh, be saved. Um, I think more broadly and maybe more simply, you could say that what was lost was a God-centered existence. So again, if you kind of reverse engineer wisdom of God, that means his wisdom was lost in the beginning, which you know, it, it in one sense implies that another kind of wisdom was, uh, was put out there or held out or grasped onto by uh, by humanity. Um, and that's really how the biblical story begins. Uh, just a couple of like, sentences quick on that. Some of you are aware of this, but the very beginning of the Bible begins with human beings grasping for self-reliance. 
So when you read the story of Adam and Eve and the talking snake and how humanity falls away from God and there's pain and uh, fallenness and curse that, 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 that encompasses plant life and, and human beings and death and, and, the, and the animal kingdom, everything falls. Like Basically what happened to precede that is human beings grasped for self-reliance. Even reaching for the good apart from God as though they were able to control the good themselves uh, and even source it out of their heart themselves. And all hell has been breaking loose ever since. That, that's basically the background and really the story in a lot of ways uh, of the, the fallen part of the story at least, the, the, the darker background against which Jesus shines all the brighter. Uh, the Bible says elsewhere about this in Romans 1 in the New Testament that thinking themselves to be wise they became fools. This, this is uh, Paul's kind of take, you read Romans, he starts very big picture, not just about the church, but this is basically a descript of humanity. This is like, this is how things went so sour, is they thought they were good. Human beings thought they were wise. Human beings thought they were able and capable to obey. Uh, and again, in the very beginning, the tree that Adam and Eve grasped for was the tree of discernment. Not the tree of murder or adultery or evil, the tree of knowing the difference between good and evil. And so it was their assumption that they didn't need God as much as they thought they did. And they could, again, uh, kind of massage, control, uh, you know, subjugate, uh, source the good themselves that led to all kinds of wickedness and fallenness and distance and exile from, from God. John Oswald says in his uh, introduction to his commentary on the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, but this, this could be applied to the whole Bible. He says, Isaiah comes to us as a revelation of the inevitable conflict between divine glory and human pride. See that contrast? Divine glory and human pride. Of the self-destruction which that pride must bring and of the grace of God in restoring that destroyed humanity to himself. And then I would add, by way of, the restoration was by way of his son's own destruction on the cross. To say this a little bit differently, um, I think the narrative that people sometimes think the Bible is about is people sinned, so God gave us his laws and commandments, and then he gave us Jesus further down the road, both of which help us not to sin. But the actual narrative is that people sinned by grabbing for the fruit of self-sufficiency and robbed glory from the only one worthy of it. We kicked God off his throne, essentially, and took a seat. So God gave us the law to reveal the critical flaws in our abilities and our self-sufficiency and then sent Jesus to die for our sins, especially our pride, which in turn would win our hearts back and give us a desire to not be on the throne and for him to be our all-sufficient king. So you notice the difference there? Christianity is not, you made some mistakes, now here's how to fix them. Not at all. Uh, it's you and I have done the worst thing imaginable to God. We have stolen his glory. Solutions not to massage our pride by giving us things to do so we can fix our own problems, but by telling us it's not about us. And that Jesus died to show us that our wisdom, our law-keeping abilities, our inherent sense of goodness are all left by the wayside 
in order to show that the wisdom of God is the cross of Christ itself, alone, forever, never changing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 is a great place to see this too as kind of a sister passage to this one. I'm not going to consult it in full today for time's sake, but Paul there explicitly says, the wisdom of God is Jesus and him crucified. And when he is preached, it frustrates our wisdom. It, it confuses our wisdom because our wisdom is always trying to flex and to amplify who we are and to say we can do it and you got this over and over and over again. Uh, but God's wisdom is the antithesis of all of that. And so that's what's proclaimed by the church to kind of um, start to circle back to some practicality here as we talk about um, what that looks like, you know, for the church to be um, kind of a harbinger of that or, or an evangelist of that or a sharer of that. What's proclaimed by the church is not the goodness of humanity, but the goodness of Christ. And as this passage says, his boundless riches or measureless uh, riches. Like that song says, it, it, uh, thrown into the sea without bottom or shore. Um, about uh, where our sin goes. Like, it, it's, there, there's a measurelessness to Christian theology that the Bible's not shy about. Uh, Paul says in verse 8 here, I uh, love this, this is um, a little bit of an aside, but he says, I am less than the least of all of these. Uh, you know, he, this is a guy who understands, he has a healthy doctrine of, like, anthropology, uh, like human beings and sin, and um, he's saying, you know, of all the Christians, I am the least, and yet God chose me to frustrate the wisdom of everyone who thought that the work they put in, they would get something out from God. Because I'm an example of how that, that narrative is not at all what God wants, not at all in the Bible. You don't get out what you put in. It's just like, he's saying, the very bottom, like there's no one beneath me. You know, I was chosen or given this grace, not works, grace to show and to scream to the world, not just my message, but my story, my life as an apostle, is this constant neon flashing sign that we're saved by God's one-way love shown to us, uh, not by um, ours to him. Reminded me, have you guys seen the, money, uh, the movie Moneyball uh, before, Brad Pitt? There's that, I can almost quote the whole movie. Uh, but he, he, it's, there's this uh, scene in the beginning where he says, there's rich teams, there's poor teams, there's 50 feet of crap, and then there's us. And he's like, it's an unfair game. Remember that? Then he goes on. And Anyway, I'll stop. But it's, it's just, that, that's basically what he's saying. There's like, there's good Christians, bad Christians. He's not really saying that. But, you know, then there's 50 feet of crap, and then there's me. I was chosen um, not because I had done anything whatsoever to deserve it, but I was the worst person on the earth. And Jesus says, I'm saving him. And he's not just going to be saved, uh, he's going to be used to be a, a channel of this grace to frustrate people who think they know something. Frustrate people who think they're strong, who think they're good Christians, who think they're spiritual in all the right ways and, and that they've been privileged in some capacity. I'm frustrating, mucking all of that up by choosing Paul. And you see, this is our story too. And for Paul, like, he's not depressed by this, right? This is, when grace swoops in and says this, the Bible says this, Christians have this weird, or should, have this weird ability to say, I'm the less of the least, and yet I'm the happiest guy in the world. 
because I'm loved still. I know I'm loved apart from that. Like, I, I believe God came through the 50 feet of crap and saved me and pulled me out. Like, I, I didn't climb out. I was pulled. Um, there's an ultimate lifeguard. There's, a, there's an ultimate rescuer, and it's not me. And it's sort of like, it just, it releases you, right? It releases us. And Paul is an example of extreme joy, but also as a Christian, being able to say I, that I am, not was, Right? He's not saying, I, I was less of the least. No, I currently am as a Christian. This is my story now. You don't graduate from this state after you convert. And all of a sudden, well, now I'm not it's because I can, uh, I'm a believer. This is our ongoing story. Uh, we're looked to and loved and saved in that state, not because we climb out um, our, ourselves. So when it says then, to go back to this, when it says that God is revealing his wisdom to the world through the church, that doesn't mean he's revealing wise principles for living. That's too similar to the wisdom of man. It means the wisdom of God, again, is the riches of his grace. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is, the Bible says, the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Uh, it means, um, when the church does this, it means we're, we're proving us wrong, and we're proving God right. Uh, it, this, is, this is, again, one of the major reasons for the church's existence is to be a channel of revelation from God to the world saying Jesus has died for your sins and has risen from the dead. Because, again, in saying that, God frustrates our wisdom, and our wisdom always hits on our abilities and strength. And he humbles us and saves us from our grave rebellion and our hell-bound race. And so, like, speaking to our church a little bit more specifically for a second, though, you know, this is obviously very broad and this is not meant to be novel. We don't want to be novel about any of this stuff uh, as, as a church. But when it comes to, like, how we live then as a community, um, we, we want to be a bunch of less than the leasts here who are basking in the sunlight of grace and trying our best to share it with others. That's been Hiawatha's story for 17 years. Some of you are brand new. Some of you were there at the very beginning. But that's, that's been our story. We want to be unimpressive, you know, uh, in, in some ways. We, um, and we're okay with that. We want to be a bunch of, like Paul, less than the least of who really believe and actually practice that grace, God's grace, is sufficient. Like actually believe it and, and live that out. So some of us, as we kind of think about this outward impulse, because we have good news to share, uh, right? And so um, the, the more that sinks in, the more we want to talk about it is kind of the idea. But it's going to look a hundred, maybe thousand different ways. Um, and so we're always careful to talk about evangelism too narrowly because it's not going to, it's going to apply to like one of you. And so, it, you know, in our history, this, you know, God has worked in different ways. You know, some of us pray, um, you know, for non-Christians, or we all should, but some of us really spend a lot of time in that. Some of us are actually doing the evangelizing uh, or preaching. S some of us have been involved in church planting. Some of us are showing hospitality um, to a lost world and inviting them to church. Uh, some of us are working hard at loving other Christians publicly because Jesus says, when you love other believers, that's one of the biggest marks of being one of my people, uh, and it's attractive to a, a lost world. Some of us are on online forums and, you know, trying to persuade and do apologetics with our atheistic coworkers. Uh, some of us are just striving to live quietly 
uh, and to serve others and to take a keen interest in people because to live quietly is to live by grace, unimpressively, as I was saying before, but happily in him. All right, so then we move to the, the next piece here, which again is the kind of the, the balance to this. Uh, these are both critically important, we think, for healthy churches, but it's not just about that uh, mission. It's about this, this inward uh, look as well. So primarily from verses 14 uh, to 19, which I'll throw on screen here. I won't read that again, but um, this, it's primarily from this, this section. All right, now, one of the things, uh, I don't want to presume where all you guys have kind of been from with church and everything. I know it's a wide kind of variety of, of your past, and some of you aren't Christians yet, or you're becoming one. It's, it's a whole diversity here. But uh, one of the things that gets lost, especially in certain strands of evangelicalism, and especially in the church planting world, of which we have uh, like one foot in that pool, and so this is why I say that, is that mission or outward focusness that like we were just talking about, as good as that is, becomes so much the focus that it becomes a form of duty alone or a metric or a task list or uh, even a central vision at, expen- at the expense of other things. And then it presumes something that's very dangerous to presume about Christian life and ministry, and that is that since we're saved, the focus is safe to be taken off of us altogether or off the church and to be put on those outside of our walls. But I would say that that is a very overly simplistic take on salvation and it's a million miles from the teaching of the New Testament which has a relentlessly inward-focused view of, of the church as well. So are we safe in Christ the day we first believe until the day of our dying breath? Absolutely. Can we lose our salvation? No. Or better said, Christ can't lose us. But, but Paul here in his prayers reminding us that we're also on a road trip that never takes its hand off the wheel of the gospel. Uh, that's Christianity. Ever. I mean, ever. Uh, it, it, it likens Jesus to, a, in this passage, a never-ending well that keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper not to some one-off event of life like graduating high school. You know, so the Bible never says, Christianity is kind of like graduating high school. Or Christianity is like doing this one-off event of your life that's very punctiliar and very, you do this one time in life, uh, and that's it. Uh, it never talks in those terms. It always uses metaphors that you need every day constantly, like oxygen or breath of life or bread or water, or in this case, never-ending well. You can never get to the bottom. To show that you can... We, we know, but we don't know. It's, it's like we, we, we know in part, but not in whole. I think C.S. Lewis said, truly, um, but not um, comprehensively. I'm butchering that, but something like that. It, it's like, it, it's, it, this is the Christian life. It's living that state uh, of constant need, a constant IV drip of the grace of God pumping into our veins until our dying breath and then into eternity. So Peter says, I pray for you Christians that you may be strengthened by grace in your inner being, that Christ may dwell with you. And then, I love this part, he says, I pray you may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, surpasses our ability to fully understand our neat little components and compartments that we uh, tend to try to cram things in and say, we got it, we're done, we, we fully have, have understood. 
So a couple of things here. Uh, first, um, you know, like, this is just a broad encouragement, too, for when you read the Bible and think about theology. Um, read a passage like 10 times sometimes and just ask good questions about it. A lot of times that's what I do when I study is just write down a bunch of questions that come up and then from there theology comes, or in some cases sermon, entire sermons. Um, but one question I'm going to ask for you guys, uh, and I guess for me afresh, about this is what does Paul want for Christians? Let you guys look at that again and kind of skim it. Like, what does Paul want for Christians? What does Paul kneel before God for? over and over and over again. What does he labor for? It's maybe not what we'd expect, and maybe not what we feel like we labor for in church ministry. We might feel like we're kind of off the mark here a little bit. But what he says is, I pray that you may grasp just how immense Jesus' love is. And to that, remember this was written to Christians, to that we might say, well, but we know that. We know the love of Jesus. We know it sufficiently. We know it. We feel like we know it truly. We talk about it all the time. Um, but we don't. This passage says you don't. You don't. And that's not an insult. It's just saying uh, don't be so arrogant to think that you actually know the love of God fully and that um, you could move on from that and actually have a healthy Christian life moving on from the thing that God said you need every day. That's actually arrogance. It's sin to do that. It's sin. It's theological sin. It's ministerial sin. It's church philosophy sin. If churches emphasize something else than this, you know, at the center, it's a sin there. Um, this is here for a reason. You know, again, like I said before, for our recentering and for a consolation and relief and to remind us what an inward-focused, healthily speaking, church uh, looks like. Verse 16 is really interesting uh, follow the logic here and look at what the Bible says about strength and power. So if you weren't even looking at this, if you thought, you know, what does Webster say about strength? And if you open the dictionary, what is, what is a definition of power? But then like overlay that here and see how Paul's talking about power, true power in the Christian life. Verse 16 says, I pray the Lord would strengthen you in your inner being by his spirit in order that... Christ may do something in order that Christ may dwell, in order that Christ may move towards you, in order that you may be in the passive role and the receiver of his grace. Do you see that? How backwards this is? Like if you put your hand over uh, verse 17 and just read 16, you didn't know what 17 was, you might think, wow, we're getting power from God through his spirit in our inner being to, we probably put in like, to do all this great stuff for God, you know, or to have massive change in our life or to accomplish all kinds of tasks and works for him. But it doesn't say that. This is the equivalent of saying, uh, like someone praying for me and saying, Chris, I pray for you that Peter might do something for you. Like, what? I pray you may have strength that Peter might do something. I pray you might have strength that Taylor might do something. I'm like, why don't you pray for his strength? Do you see how... Christianity swoops in from the side door and says, nope, not like you think. Power, but not like you think. Strength, but not like you think, or you've operated in your whole life. This is the wisdom of the world says, you're strong, and it comes from you. The wisdom of God says, 
You are not strong, you're weak, and, and, but I want you to be strong enough to be weak. I want to have the strength to be in the recipient role. Strength that you might trust in God and not yourself. This is the upside-down flip. This is the offensive nature sometimes to very driven, all of us are this, uh, driven, we're all legalists in the heart. We all think we're better than we are. Um, even as Christians, we think it's up to us on some level to maintain or to turn God's head or whatever it is. It could be a thousand things. To this says, what Paul really wants is for the church to grow in their knowledge of God's grace and love. Uh, also notice this uh, phrase, easy to read over, but he says, together with God's people. Uh, th- there is a togetherness about the Christian life that can't be ignored. Uh, th- this is, it's even like everything I was just saying, understood in an individualized way. And in one sense, that's fine to do that. Um, but there's, he, he's also praying for the church to do this together, to understand this stuff together. And so it ends up shaping much of what churches do usually, certainly for us. Uh, this is a big passage. I think we've read this before with our community group leaders. And um, what the church really is, uh, is a community of faith that is mutually encouraged by one another. Paul actually says that in Romans 1. I, I, I'm not with you, like he's often not with people when he writes to them, hence the letters, obviously, duh, right? But he, he wants to see them again to be mutually encouraged by one another. And um, I, I love that. I, I, you know, I, one thing, when I read Paul's letters sometimes, I just always think, Paul really loves Christians. He really loves believers. And again, that might sound like an obvious thing, but it's not always that way for Christians uh, who've been hurt by others and different things. But he just loves Christians so much, and he wants to be around other Christians so much. But churches then are, are these communities that get together in big and small ways and they say with open Bibles before them, let's see how deep the well of the gospel goes. Let's see how far the expanse of the love of Jesus goes. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, just repeat that to your, your community groups this, this year precisely, but I think that's the mentality I would encourage you all to bring every week is with open Bibles before you, maybe having dinner, you know, talking, sharing your lives together, you, you ultimately say, let's see how deep it goes, because it goes a lot deeper than I thought. God's love. God's love, in terms of what I understand, is very, very small compared to how big it actually is. Let's, let's see together um, how deep this well goes. Healthy churches, then, are inward-focused in this way, I would say. They take Scripture like this seriously. They see Christ in all of Scripture rather than Christ as one part of Scripture, they see growth is always coming through the gospel, not apart from it. And they never tire of centralizing the only thing that can bear the burden of being the main thing of a church, which is the gospel, to quote Tim Keller. All right, then this last uh, angle is I'll call heavenward. Um, you may or may not have noticed. You probably didn't because I feel like I barely did. But um, the first two sections had verbs uh, to them. So it was preaching and making known. It was grasping and growing. Those are all descriptive of what the church does and experiences. Here, though, there's no verbs. It's just encouragement and glory. Now let me read verse 13 again. Um, Probably, you know, again, Paul's got his head way in the clouds here in a good way. It's a lot of enigma. 
an abstractness to this passage, but this might be, this might take the cake. He says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Oh, crystal clear. Let's close in prayer, right? Like, what? You guys ever read this stuff from Paul before? This is like, this is kind of nutso, right? It sounds almost a little bit braggy-braggy, or it sounds like, well, what are you talking about? How can my sufferings be someone's glory? And what even is glory? Um, but that's basically what he's saying is Paul's sufferings are the Ephesian church's glory. This is a major theme in Paul's letters. Second uh, Timothy, we just got done this summer looking through. This is a major theme. You almost just have to close your eyes and point at all of Paul's letters and just pop. And then, oh, there's another one where he says things like, I'm dying, but it means you're living. I'm suffering, but it means you're comforted. He talks all, all over the place like this. And this is another one. This is actually another one of Paul's prison letters, this one written during his first Roman imprisonment. So he's drawing from his own experience and suffering and and just doing theology with it, showing how his suffering is somehow working for the betterment, in this case, of the Ephesian Christians. But that's still like kind of abstract, right? Like what does that actually mean? Um, Here's a big thing I think you need to pull from this, and we'll we'll, um, kind of go from here. Christianity is like wearing a medal that someone else won for you or someone else won, did all the work for. That's, like what, it mean, that's what it means to like live as a Christian constantly is you're wearing things and carrying things around that were given to you and that were worked for by another. And so it's this constant humbling and appreciation and wow, I didn't do anything, but I'm so happy at the same time that I'm loved like this, you know, and that, someone, that God wants to share himself with me. It's this constant kind of both and of that. Um, so our, in other words, our glory is not something we've done. Please hear that. Our glory, your glory in God's eyes, your glory is not something you've done, but something someone else has. When Paul says, my sufferings are your glory, he's saying the most important thing about you isn't anything you've done, but my sufferings in a dirty prison cell. That's the most important thing about you. Not that other things are unimportant, but the most important thing is my sufferings in a dirty prison cell. Ephesian Christians, like what? Again, Christian theology is trippy. It's, It's meant to trip us up. The wisdom of the world doesn't think this way. How can you say that? We never celebrate the work of another given to us apart from this. Like it's a very otherworldly thing. But do you see the gospel in this? Think of like this becoming Jesus' words to us and kind of laying that over our life and over Ephesians 3. This is kind of what you'd be left with. The gospel in this is Jesus saying, my sufferings are your glory. They're what you wear around your neck, adorned like a gold necklace. You wear the message that I have bought you back from sin and death at the price of my own life. When I became less than the least of these myself for you on a bloody cross. All right? Now, please hear me when I say this. If you get nothing else from this sermon, hear this. That right there is the most important thing about you. And you've done nothing for it. Nothing to earn it. Nothing to add to it. 
The most important thing about you is what Jesus has done, and he's given it to you. Isn't that freeing? I hope that's freeing. Maybe that's extremely offensive. Fine. That's great. I hope it's freeing, because that means nothing you've ever done, good or bad, can add on to that or take away from it. Nothing in your story. It's just that you're loved. Glory, beauty, wearing a crown, having some kind of status in God's eyes, is completely apart from anything we work for. It's not our obedience. It's the obedience of the Son, the Bible says. Christ's obedience in wearing that cross to Calvary and being pinned to it among criminals. That, the Bible says, is glory. Glory. And and now, like verse 12 says, we can approach God with freedom and confidence precisely because our glory is someone else's work. If our glory was in part our work, we'd never have the freedom and the confidence. And by the way, when the Bible talks about freedom, it's not just freedom from sin, it's freedom from the law. If you read the New Testament, it's impossible to miss. Like, actually read it. Freedom is not just freedom from sin, it's freedom from the commandments and the law because they're not over you anymore. They're not a chain, ankle cuffs, or a heavy yoke, the Bible says, around your neck that you can't stand upright because it's so heavy. When Jesus came, he liberated you from all that because he says, I'm saving you apart from it. I'm not throwing them back on your body after I save you like it's, like it's a bait-and-switch gospel. Like, it's all about grace, but oh, surprise, no, it's not. Now it's about you and how good you are as a believer. Like, it's not Christianity. It's not. Glory is, a, is not something you've worked for. Your glory, the most important thing about you, in God's eyes, is that he's done something for you. You know, like my old pastor used to say, put that in your theological pipe and smoke it, you know? You you just have to. Smoke it, or think about it. Ruminate. Uh, Talk with others about, pray through that. That is is what this is saying. And Ephesian Christians, like we are now, are getting this, thinking, wow, that's not the wisdom of the world, but it must be the wisdom of God. I'll turn the dial once more here and just say this. Jesus' sufferings are Hiawatha Church's glory. Our community has glory to it, but it's nothing we've ever done. It's not our philosophy of ministry. It's not uh, the decisions we've made. It's not the conversions we've seen. Uh, it's, it's not, those are amazing things, but that's not, that's not glo- our ultimate glory. Our ultimate glory is simply that we're loved. apart from anything we've ever done. Uh, We're wearing the medal of Jesus' crucifixion. So when people see us, they see someone who's less than the least, beneath the 50 feet of crap, who's wearing Jesus' sufferings and who's glorious in heaven's eyes. To the world, that's ridiculous and foolish and awful and laughable. But you guys, as Christians, we're different this is, this is precisely how we're meant to be unworldly, not like the world, in how we don't amplify the self, we point to someone else. And we have glory in that. And the world doesn't have it. As they stumble over each other, we do this too as Christians, we climb all over each other trying to get to the top first, thinking there's something up there. And God's like, I'm not up there. I came all the way down to get you. And not just that, in the end, I'm going to come to earth. You're not going to heaven. 
I'm coming to earth. You know, it just, it's one last thing where God's poking us in the ribs saying, surprise, you thought you were going up there. Like you thought you were going to ascend based on something you've done. No, I'm coming down. And eternity will be a new earth forever with Jesus and all the redeemed saints forever and seeing him face to face and having our tears wiped away, living in this perfect existence. I mean, that's what our future is. Isn't that great? The most important thing about our church is Jesus' sufferings. Every sermon, every evangelism, every song, communion, community groups, center of prayers, it's how we grow. It's everything. And, And no other lesser agenda, no matter how noble, will ever take its seat on that throne. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for this passage. Thank you um, for speaking to us, for telling us what you're like, for helping us understand how to read the Bible as a story, for helping us understand what the problem was in the beginning, what was lost and what's now reclaimed in and through Jesus Christ, the, uh, the purpose of the law, how it brought us low, how it showed us that our grasping for self-sufficiency was always... Um, Never the point. It needed to be exposed. Our pride had to be destroyed. Uh, But in the wake of that, you would be there with your grace, saying, I will bear the penalty. I'll die like a criminal. I myself will become the least of, uh, less than the least of these. I'll be buried beneath the 50 feet of crap for you to carry your sins far, far away and to pull you with me up out of it uh, into new life. Uh, That and so much more, God, help us to pray these things for each other. Help us to centralize these things for each other. Help us not to move on from them for each other. Uh, Help us to see you in these things in in all scripture. And um, Jesus, you're our glory. Uh, We praise you. We thank you. Uh, Everything we've done, it's it's nothing compared uh, to what you've done for us. Uh, So help us to be adorned by the sufferings of Jesus uh, all our days. Um, May the world see it. May they be tripped up by it. May they be attracted to it. May they be grown in it. Um, Grow our church, God, uh, we pray, through conversion growth and other forms as well. Uh, we, We pray that you'd be at work. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.